Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from the suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Hello, Andrew. How are you? Yuletide greetings. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays. The whole thing. Oh, I know. Hanukkah has only recently concluded, but I still take that happy Hanukkah and I I accept it and I'm grateful for it. Merry Christmas. Uh, Happy Kwanzaa, which is coming up on December 26th. Uh, A merry happy to all of our listeners at Greendale Community College. Uh, uh, Happy Olden Yule to any dragons that might be listening on the island of Hutzgalor. I think I've covered most things. And uh, and in Irish, it's Nolig Hunaglich, which is uh, Gaelic for Happy Christmas. There you go. Oh, it's good to see you. I miss seeing you in person. This time of year makes me very nostalgic in that way. I was thinking a year ago uh, at this time on this show, remember, I was thinking actually, maybe I'll, I'll put it out on our next podcast next week around New Year's. Remember we did the uh, the holiday medley of soccer-related uh, Christmas songs? Yeah, I, I, I thought of that the other day and I thought that's got to get re-released if it's yeah. possible. I also saw that someone was tweeting about Charles Reap and I went to find our podcast about him and the long ball and his mistake in mathematics, which changed the course of English soccer history. But I couldn't find that podcast either. Maybe we should release some classics on the old, uh, the caught offside feed, the specific feed. Would the Charles Reap podcast be considered a classic? Oh, I think so. Okay. <laughs> I think so. I think from every angle, we had Joe Sykes, uh, formerly of 538 or- on, with his accent, which sounds like he should have been a butler in The Queen. Um, Charles that Reap. Charles Reap. Yeah, no, it was awesome. And um, and just interesting because, uh, you know, English football was changed by this guy who, who got his mats wrong. Yeah. Uh, what a show we have coming up for you. There's uh, a lot to talk about in the Premier League. Manchester United are, are back and will probably win the title. Tottenham are steaming towards relegation. Uh, it's a week-to-week league. It really is, JJ. So we'll talk about all of that. Um, let's see. CONCACAF Champions League final. It was late last night. Um, it was soul-crushing in many ways for these wide-eyed Americans that so desperately want our league to be taken seriously. We'll talk about that as well. We've got a nice mailbag here. I, I see um, Scotty Helstad sent us a very late DM last night about Gareth Bale, which I look forward to addressing uh, for him and for all of you. This uh, this should be a fun one, my friend. There's a lot. There's a lot to get to. And then also, we are going to go into club. That's right. Everton supporters, you've wanted this. You've been asking for it. And we feel like we owe it to you. And so we are going to go in the club with Everton and Greg O'Keefe, who covers them for The Athletic. Uh, That'll be coming up pretty soon, as a matter of fact. Uh, I look forward to that because Everton, we kind of like, they were in the title race after a few weeks. Then they were out of it and we kind of forgot about them. And now they're back in it. And we feel like we've kind of given them short shrift. At least I feel that way. And I know they have a huge American following. So I I felt like it was was the right thing to do, JJ. We have to honor the memory of uh, Joe Max Moore, Tim Howard, Brian McBride, all these guys, Landy Cakes, we must respect Everton. We are duty-bound to do so. Yes. So uh, Greg O'Keefe of The Athletic joining us. He covers uh, Everton, joining us shortly. Let's start, JJ. Uh, let's start with the Premier League, I suppose. I, I do – I'm so torn. There's a part of me that desperately wants to get straight to the CONCACAF Champions League final. But I, oh, I, come I on, can man. see you rolling Please. your <laughs> We're going to talk even, about it. Relax. You're not even being subtle in your disdain for, uh, for that as a topic. So I, I will – 
No, I'll concede I, to you. I, I can't wait to talk about it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But you are just, can we just work the process? Work the process. We've got a nice rundown. Go through the process. I'm a newsman at heart. I believe in immediacy of stories. The game only just ended, it feels like minutes ago. Um, but no, no, no. We'll, we'll talk about some EPL stuff from uh, six days ago. Sure, that's fine. Uh, oh. All right. The, EP, the EPL title race, JJ, um, yeah, I'm kind of making jokes in the in the buildup. It has taken a an interesting turn in some ways. Um, I feel I feel like I'm showing up here today a little bit with my tail between my legs because um, it was less than a week ago where we recorded an emergency podcast where I, I basically said, yes, Liverpool are, are clear favorites for this. Uh, they should be viewed as that. But I also felt that Tottenham were worthy challengers and would be in it with them till the end. And while that still may be true, that could very well wind up being the case. I do understand the optics of me saying that less than a week ago and Tottenham now being sixth in the table. Uh, Andrew, you just said it's a week-to-week league. So, I mean, again, you always want to self-flagellate. You always want to to whip yourself, like admonish yourself. Let me do all that. Allow me to do all that. (laughs) That's the way this thing works. Look, um, the league is like this. You know, you can look at where Spurs are right now and, and just based on the maths, they're not anywhere close to being out of the title race everyone is in it it's it's that kind of a league uh, liverpool have have created a bit of padding because of the weekend's results sure but um and liverpool of course are 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 favorites now at this point but no you shouldn't be beating yourself up over this um the reasons why spurs won't win the league are not in the league table and they certainly aren't in the amount of points left to play for there are other more obvious reasons why they may not do it Interesting. We'll get to them. I don't want to start with them. I want to start really with Liverpool. You know, seven nil over the weekend, and we don't need to go, you know, goal by goal and analyze that. But, but, I, but we should say we should note there were sensual first touches on 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 offer. Uh, Roberto Firmino's first goal was just it was it was beautiful. It's the first touch. You know, we talk about it a lot on this podcast, and like it's one of those things where it's like. There are certain sports where the more you watch a sport, the more you come to understand the importance of a certain element of it that doesn't always get like its credit for how important it is. Like in the NFL, the more I watch the NFL, you know, I've been watching it my entire life, but the more I watch it, the more I'm just like, if you don't have a good offensive line, you're just garbage. Like you can't be good. It's just like one of those, like people don't like to harp on offensive lines, but that's just the more I watch it, the more I see that. And in soccer, the more I see, like, if you don't have a quality first touch, you there's just always going to be a ceiling as to how good of a player you can be. And Firmino's first touch on that goal was, it was brilliant, man. He's, he's a great player. They're a great team. And I, and the, the question I have about Liverpool with regards to the title races, uh, it's kind of a, you tell me which one is more likely. Um, a, Liverpool win this in a runaway or B, someone pushes them or or even beats them to it in the end? I, what, you, you've given yourself such narrow options. Uh, allow me to insert a C, where Liverpool win the title. The, the championship is won in the high 70s, so a return to what it used to be in the 1990s. So it's, it's 77, 78, whatever points in there. Uh, someone pushes them, or maybe a couple of teams push them a little bit, but Liverpool remain the better team. And win it. That's the way I see it playing out at this point in time. But well, that, that's essentially what my my second option was. Is it? 
Let me yeah, see what your second would. option is. If someone pushes them, yeah, pushes them, yeah. but I don't see anyone beating them as of now. Now, the other thing that we've got to talk about is that there's going to be down the line um, a fixtures, probably two moments of huge fixture pileup. And that is going to be defining. Um, we've got a lot coming up in January. We've already seen how Liverpool have been just shedding pieces of this of this train. If this is a, a, a train that is on a track and can't be stopped, there are pieces falling off. And so far, they've absorbed that. But we've seen that they can be erratic from game to game with the schedule they've had and with the injuries they've had. So, so that's another factor. But right now, I think they're favorites. And I, I would go with your B option. Okay. And and the question, which I guess still is far from identifying itself, if you go with B, that you do believe someone will push them, look, I'm not even going to bother to ask the natural follow-up to that of who is the team most likely to push them. It's it's chaos right now. Uh, right. You know, like like we're we're joking about Tottenham going from first to sixth in six days. Like they could just as easily like if you just look at how these the points are right now and how the table is laid out, it could just as easily spin itself back around. You know, so it's it's almost an exercise in futility in even trying to determine right now who that team is going to be that is most likely to push them. Um, but we'll go through some of this and we'll talk about, you know, who right now some of the candidates are. I don't want to get off of Liverpool just yet, though, because um, while, you know, they're, they're coming off this incredible run of the Champions League two years ago and winning the league last year being in the driver's seat for a repeat performance this season. And yes, there have been a little, there have been some bumps, as you mentioned, with the Van Dyke injury, Gomez, you know, Matt Tip, although, you know, Alexander Arnold, but these guys are starting to come back now, Thiago. Um, but like the one thing that we haven't seen with Liverpool in, in this Klopp era is a desire for any of these players to want to leave. That's been the one bump in the road that has been repelled by what's been going on there. And I wonder how seriously you and other Liverpool supporters are taking this talk about Mo Salah being unhappy at the club and him, you know, somewhat subtly, but also not so subtly, not you know, subtly. praising Real, Real Madrid and Barcelona specifically. Uh, yeah, I wonder if this is a thing that is kind of now entering the Liverpool fans' minds for the for really the first time, I'd say, in this Klopp era. This is. Um... I, I, I really don't see anything in this other than angling for improved terms on a contract. He has two and a half years on his current deal. He's looking probably to get improved terms. Um, like randomly, like a guy who doesn't do a lot of injuries, randomly talking to a Spanish newspaper. Um, and the questions, Andrew, allow me to read from this a little bit. Uh, it's from AS. Um, so, uh, so the question is, and these two questions are, are, are the key questions. How much longer do you see yourself playing for Liverpool? Laughs. Sa this is Salah's response. That's a tough question. But right now, I can say that everything is in the hands of the club. Of course, I want to break records here. And I repeat, all the club records. But everything is in the hands of the club. And then this question, which is just so bizarre because it was such a meaningless moment. We have not mentioned it. But in the last Champions League game, I was going to be, uh, you were going to be captain. And it was not like that in the end. How did you take it? Honestly, I was very disappointed. I was hoping to be the captain, but it's a coach's decision. I accept it. Now, this wasn't a knockout game. This wasn't an anything game. This was like a nothing game against Michelin. So these questions are, it's almost as if, you know, Salah has emailed him. Remember, there is a practice in journalism that happens occasionally, occasionally, 
where um, questions are pre-approved and maybe mm-hmm. even some questions are tweaked or inserted to someone. So uh, that- suggested, hey, maybe ask about the captaincy for the Michelin match. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I was clearly going to. Yeah, to to take people down a certain angle, a certain line of questioning, so uh, certain uh, responses can be elicited. Um, and that that's, that's what this feels like. First of all, he's at the age where, I mean, Gary Neville said this, he doesn't feel like, he's, Gary Neville feels the ship has sailed on going to Real Madrid or Barcelona. Um, I wouldn't think that's the case necessarily, but I think the financial ship is sinking. Those mm-hmm. clubs can't afford what he would look for on an improved contract right now. It's just not happening. Um, someone suggested, a, a Liverpool fan said, maybe this is a, a time to move him on or um, that it will be, you know, Nike money will be able to get in Kylian Mbappe. There's this constant swirling in the background that Mbappe is joining Liverpool. I don't see that either. Um, I see nothing in this, Andrew, except the usual machinations of of how a transfer or, excuse me, how improved terms are reached between a player and a club. The negotiations are are underway. Yeah, I mean, the fact that there's two and a half years left on the contract, I think, says a lot. Liverpool are under... No urgency, really, uh, to make a move happen here, uh, even if Salah is angling for one, which, like you said, may not even be the case. He may want to stay at Liverpool. He might just want to bump and pay. So, yeah, it, I'm actually I'm actually with you on this. It's, it, it's a story because Mo Salah has kind of made it one, but it's not anything that I think will alter Liverpool's course in terms of what they're going to do this season. I don't I don't see any of that. It's something that can I think can be addressed in the summer. I don't think it's this is a big deal right now. Uh, let's see. Also, JJ, I want to talk about Chelsea because I saw, um, you know, we, we've talked about their defense, how important it is, and then I saw an article up on Sky Sports website uh, a couple of days ago, and I wanted to run it by you because I thought it was interesting. And they they basically suggest that there's no player of greater importance to Chelsea right now than Thiago Silva. And I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Yeah, I read that article, Andrew, and that article was based around the West Ham United game. And I would tend to to look at that game and agree with that analysis um, because Thiago Silva got the most... He had, he had a great pass completion percentage. He was getting his head on everything. No, he was playing against Haller. Sebastian Haller, who... <laughs> I mean, just doesn't look happy at any point, even when he's scoring bicycle kicks. And um, and Silva just handled him, absolutely, because I don't think Haller is that kind of, of center forward. There was endless crosses going in, in a game that largely West Ham dominated until the last 20 minutes. Um, crosses going in from Cresswell that were dealt with, and, and, and he looked really good. But if you're going to make that analysis, which Alan Smith on Sky Sports gave man of the match, I'm going to give it to Thiago Silva. He set the ball rolling with that magnificent leap for his headed goal. That's true. He has had Haller in his pocket. Haller was a, a very willing pocket dweller in this game and got his head to so many crosses and blocked a few shots. Absolutely true. But if you watch that game, the, the most important player on that team was Christian Pulisic in a muted performance from him by his standards. Andrew, there was a, a period in the second half where... Chelsea couldn't keep the ball against a midfield of Noble and Rice. They were, it, it was so astonishing and probably so frustrating for David Moyes that they didn't make any of it count. Um, Chelsea were abject. They couldn't get, nobody seemed to know where they were supposed to be. Nothing was clicking. And at one point, around the 71st minute, Christian Pulisic gets the ball and drives 
at the West Ham defence, takes on two players, loses the ball. But at least I could say, hey, that guy knows what he's supposed to do. And lo and behold, a few minutes later, he sets up a brilliant slaloming run, sets up Mason Mount, who sets up Tammy Abraham. Now, without Pulisic, that goal doesn't happen. And without Pulisic, there was no direction to what Chelsea were trying to do, quite apart from the fact they couldn't get the ball. And even Pulisic was playing out of position on the right-hand side. So for me, Thiago Silva done well against a, a fairly meek West Ham attack. And he is and has been brilliant in terms of um, just solidifying that, that back four. But Pulisic is still their most important player. It's interesting. I, I, look, I obviously want to agree with you. You know my thoughts on Christian Pulisic and, and how great of a player he is and how important he obviously is to Chelsea and what they do in attack. But I, I can't help but think that it, it might be Thiago Silva. I can't help but think that what this article is suggesting might be true. And I'm not even necessarily looking at the West Ham match specifically as the reason for that. I think it was a nice culmination of what we've seen from Thiago Silva so far this season. But you know, this was always the perceived weakness in the Chelsea side. This was always going to be the Achilles heel that potentially held them back from top four or perhaps contending for this title, beating Liverpool out for this title. Uh, it was always going to be that back line, specifically those center backs. And if this 36-year-old who's there on a free transfer continues playing at the rate that he is, I mean, who, who wouldn't include him right now? We're a third of the way roughly, almost exactly through the season. Um, if you were compiling your all 11 right now, who wouldn't have him as one of the center backs on that team? And who would have ever expected that? A free transfer, 36 year old coming from League A. Like this guy, so this is, that's when, you know, he's in the twilight of his career, but he's in the Premier League right now and he's been one of the best center backs. And it, if that continues, then that is no longer a weakness for Chelsea. And it gives them a freedom, a greater freedom in going forward to do the sort of things that you're talking about. Yeah. I, look, I, I mean, is he better than Kurt Zuma? Certainly, if you look at Zuma's defending on Neto's winner for Wolves, I think he's a better player. I think he, I think he's a better leader. Um, I'm just, I'm just saying on on the overall um, evidence of what I've seen lately, um, Pulisic unites the attack, and that's what needs to be united and got together and figured out, and that's why I picked him. Uh, Manchester United, a huge win for them over the weekend. Ole Solskjaer's wild ride continues. They, for me right now, I wonder if you agree, are the team that is probably most difficult to figure out, to put some sort of label on. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they awesome? Terrible? I suppose inconsistent is the word to describe what it is that they are, but I have, I'm not even going to try to analyze this right now other than to say Good job by Solskjaer to keep Pogba in the squad. We talked about that when Mino Raiola made his comments about Pogba wanting to be gone. And, and in January, we said Solskjaer should stay the course, basically ignore those comments and go on with him in the lineup. And I think Pogba, to his own credit, uh, has has answered the call and has played well and has blocked all that stuff out. And if if he continues to do that, this this midfield of Bruno Fernandes and Pogba, and then you see McTominay scoring two goals in the first three minutes. I mean, you know, this... They're, I guess they're really good. It's just a matter of finding a level of consistency to be really good all the time. I, I, we had a an Instagram message from someone who asked us, could we finally give Solskjaer some credit? As if we don't give him credit or as if we don't just, I mean, we can't react game to game. You've got to give a long view of things and what's happened. Let's talk about the Leeds game and the 6-2. 
which buys the by the way, I think it's the first time United have scored six goals in a game since Sir Alex Ferguson, which again just goes to show you where they're at um, or where they have been over the last few years. Um, I thought Solskjaer got the tactics perfectly right, overloaded the midfield against Leeds, made it hard for Leeds, um, and played Dan James, which was great on the counter-attack. But, I mean, Leeds are set up to be taken apart by a team like Manchester United because Leeds will always play the way they play. They are not going to sit in. There won't be any adjustment in the style of play. And it suited United perfectly, and Solskjaer got it right. Um, but United are are a really... I'll tell you what United are, Andrew. They're a team of really good players, which doesn't have the structure or formation yet or a style of play that suits everybody. And it's still being figured out. And maybe Solskjaer isn't the man to do that. But they've got unbelievable talent. What they, They've almost got, what, like half a billion worth of talent. Like they've spent yeah. over the last few years a lot of money. And so if they're inconsistent, by by that very nature, you can expect a team like this to turn up and and play well. And right now, they're the... I, I would think themselves and Manchester City are the two teams that look most likely to push Liverpool in this in this title race, I think. I think, yeah, because I think... I was listening to BBC Radio 5 Live the other day and they were talking about Man City and they were very, very... Almost across the board on every panel panelist that they had on, Jonathan Pierce, Rory Smith, uh, Mika Richards, they all kind of said that they feel as if there's a burst coming from City, that City will be better in the new year, that City have actually been managing resources now in the absence of, of Sergio Aguero, and that they will kick on in the new year, and that, if anything, um, they've been playing within themselves, and... I think that might be true. Their record defensively, Andrew, is very, very good at the moment. Sorry to take it off on a tangent here, but... Um, no, it's fine. But, no, but they're, they're, you're right, though. Their goal scoring, what was the stat that I saw? Through 13 games last year, they had like 40 goals. And through 13 games this year, they have 19. I mean, it's something crazy like that. So you're right. If they can find that, if they can rediscover that once again, then yeah, they. I suppose they are the sleeping giant. I, I do want to go back to one thing with Manchester United. Yeah. So this... yeah. The word that I use that you use to talk about them is inconsistent. But, you know, I, I'm looking at their results right now, and I'm wondering if we're being unfair in labeling them as that. So we all know what the beginning of the season was for them. They were they were not inconsistent. They were bad. But, JJ, they have not lost since November 1st. You know, they've beaten, uh, in that time, Everton, West Brom, Southampton, West Ham. They drew with Man City. They beat Sheffield United, and then they just crushed Leeds. You know, that's that's a lot of wins consecutively. So at a certain point, when do you when do you shed the label of inconsistent? Uh, you have to watch. You have to watch games. You have to watch performances. Look at the last 20 minutes against Sheffield United. I mean, it was shambolic. They also went one nil. They went one nil down in that game with when when for no reason. Let's talk about consistency in the manager. There was no reason to start Henderson in that game against his old club, the club where he had made his name and would have had huge emotional ties. And, and he comes up with an absolute howler of a mistake. Why would you put your goalkeeper in that position? Um, let's look at the, You have to add in the Champions League as well, the performances within, within those games. Um, there have been games where... You, it's, it's almost like last season, Andrew. There were times when, when you saw Greenwood and Rashford link up, you saw Fernandes, and you thought, this team is going to explode. You, there were other times as well where you, you saw them fall apart. And let's not forget what happened at Old Trafford with Jose Mourinho. 
this season, the absolute humiliation they suffered. You know, I just think you have to you have to look at performances within games too, and and like that that six two against Leeds. Leeds scored lots of chances. It could have been six four. It's not like this was a perfect Manchester United performance. Leeds were well able to get at them, and the best goal of the game was scored by um, by a defender for Leeds United. So, yeah, look on paper, United. Oh my God, they're going. To, they're back. United are back, but. Come on, we've we've been watching them. We've been seeing where they're at. They're going to challenge, sure, but that's the kind of season it is. They're up to third right now. We go from a, a stock-up club to a stock-down club, JJ. I'm trying to be as rational as I can right now about Tottenham and what's going on with them over the last week, first to sixth, and in, in just a shocking amount of time. Um, here's the big thing, I guess, that I, I'm kind of trying to come to terms with, you know, in the wake of the Leicester City loss over the weekend, like games like that, they they're going to happen. Teams are going to have these certain days where they just don't have it, um, especially against sides that are are good. Leicester City is a good team, and for whatever reason, whether it was Tottenham's own undoing or what Leicester was doing, it was just one of those days for Spurs. They were poor, and you know, it felt a little bit like the the season opener for them against Everton. And really, I haven't seen that side of Tottenham really all that much in between where they're just they're just not on it for whatever reason and like I said I think every team is going to have days like that I just have this emotional connection with Tottenham so I feel like I'm more keenly aware of when it happens with them so like I said I, I can accept that the thing that is harder to accept when you look at this is the days where they do have it don't get the result and then like those are the games to me that come back and cost you now when you're sitting in sixth place whereas like if you if you did what you were supposed to do on those other days, you'd be right now still in first, second, third. Like the Newcastle uh, result, twenty three shots, Carl Darlow eleven saves. He looks like Manuel Neuer, and then a late penalty for a, a controversial handball. And next thing you know, you drop points. The West Ham game, three uh, 0 up in the eighty third minute. Like the those are the games that are harder for me to kind of justify in this season. Like the Leicester Everton games, like I I can live with a day where you're just you're just off. Uh, but it's the days that, that come back to bite Tottenham where they they did have it, where they were good enough. And now, you know, it's it's those clubs. We talked about Manchester City and their 100-point season, Liverpool last year. We saw those teams that win titles on days where they don't have it, they still find ways to win. And I think that's the stuff that is a little bit more concerning to me uh, than even than what I saw from Tottenham over the weekend in that loss to Leicester. Not to say that there weren't things that were that were concerning, you know, Serge Aurier, like we talked about, he's been very good this season. But there is, like, we all watched the, the Amazon Prime documentary. It was one of the first things that Jose Mourinho said to Serge Aurier in their first team meeting. You scare the bleep out of me because you have that mistake in you. Like, we all know it. And it reared its head. I mean, at, like, on the stroke of halftime, to lose sense of space of where you are and make that challenge, it just... I don't want to get on the guy too much because, like I said, he's really brought it this season in a way that Spurs fans and, and pundits didn't expect. But that was that's the other side of him. Only David Luiz has had more uh, committed more penalties over the last two or three seasons or, or so uh, than Serge Aurier. So, like that can happen. The own goal on Toby Alderweireld, it's kind of an unlucky bounce of the ball. Like I don't, I don't know what to even how to even analyze stuff like that. The Aurier foul, the own goal. It's just. It's just kind of one of those days, and they didn't generate much in attack. And I give Leicester City credit for that. And now Tottenham are sixth. Yeah, Andrew, but bad results can happen. Um, people know 
what I'm going to say about this. People understand already my point of view. I think if you if you commit yourself to playing the least amount of football possible, then you're always leaving it open to results like this and to results like that happened against Southampton and to results that happened even against good teams like Liverpool and especially against Leicester City because Leicester came and thought, we don't have to play that much football against this team. Sit in. <laughs> Try and make them play. See what happens. But... People know what I, I, I'm going to bore people with that. This is Kyle Dawson, a a Tottenham fan. Question for Andrew: Tottenham is a weird team. They lose even when Mourinho's plan works. They look poor today, but to be fair, they almost always look poor even when they win. Mm. First, I disagree with that. Uh, uh, my question is: How should Mourinho be judged so far this season? If one of Man City's shots deflects in for a goal, is that game still a oh, masterclass? No, as stop, some people have said. Stop! 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 That's ridiculous. I, I can't hear that kind of criticism anymore. It's not just this style, okay? That can happen to any team. Tottenham are not the only team that wins close games. Everybody wins two ones, one nils, three twos. It's not just them that play this style. This is the same team that beat Southampton, what was it, 6-2? The same team that beat Manchester United, 6-1? You know, like, they, they do score goals, all right? Like, there are going to be games that they play that are tight, but they generate scoring opportunities. So, I, yeah, this this idea that, like... This team is playing some style where they're they're set out to play nil nils and that's it. And if they can get a lucky break, they'll win one nil. It's mm. not the case. It's not true. I, I can't hear that anymore. That if a shot deflects in, well, that's true of every game. Watch any game. If a shot deflects in for any team, you just talked about yourself. Manchester United won six two. You're saying, well, if things have gone a little bit differently, Leeds are in it at six four. Every single game we can play that in our heads. So that's. Joe, if, if you want to hear me judge Jose Mourinho so far this season, I think he's been brilliant. I don't care what anyone has to say. I don't care what you have to say, what our listeners have to say. Okay. The expectations for what this team was supposed to okay. be this year, they've been excellent. All right, they, they went through a gauntlet of Chelsea, Man City, Arsenal. They came out with seven points. They were top of the table for four straight weeks. They're in a title race that they never expected to be in. All right, we thought they were a mid-table side mm. coming into the season. I don't, I'm done with that. I don't want to hear it anymore. I mean, I... I one week they play Manchester City and the whole world is is heaping praise on Mourinho. And here we are a week later and now he's a bad manager again. Like they're not doing anything different. They have a style, everyone. All right. They are going to play this style come hell or high water. If we're going to love it the weeks where they beat Manchester City, we can't hate it then two weeks later. It doesn't work like that. This is what they're going to be. They're not going to change. I, I, I agree with you to a point, and I, I think that um, where that style really works and their best performances of the last few weeks have been against teams that go out and play. They put in a very good performance where they created good chances against Liverpool, a team that's not going to change the style of play and will come out and play against them. They did the same against Manchester City. I think they're going to struggle against teams who who say, fine, you have the ball. You do something. You come out of your shell. Yes. That's where they're going to struggle. They very well might. So they, yeah, those games are going to be probably, they'll probably be more difficult for them. But like, we, we have to wonder what is the alternative? We can only see one side of this. Like, Aurier, Alderweireld, Dyer. We looked at Tottenham's back line and they were done. It was a group that was absolutely finished. All right. So like, yeah, Jose Mourinho has found a way to not have to dive deep into the transfer market and spend a lot of money to completely revamp his back line. He's found a way to get these guys to buy back into the system to a point where it's now got them in what we're saying is a title race. All right. And he's done it without having to spend other than Regalon mm-hmm. on the back line. Uh, you know, he hasn't had to really open things up. He's playing the same guys. So, like, this is stuff that was never expected. 
And he's never going to, nobody's giving him credit for rejuvenating these careers that we thought were finished. Maybe they have to play that way because if they want to open up, we'll find out that, well, maybe Dyer and Alderweireld and Aurier really are not the players that we're looking at so far this season. Maybe they have to play where Sissoko is dropping deep to help them in defense. It's like, we just, we're not going to see the, we don't know what the other side looks like, but I'm telling you, we started to see it in the end of Pochettino. It wasn't pretty. All right. I love Pochettino. I'll he'll always be one of, probably my favorite manager for this club, but there's a reason he got fired. Things were headed in such a poor direction. And like we said, these their defense was finished. These guys were cooked. So I don't know. It's just like that, that criticism of all, oh, it's just hearing that kind of like buzzword. Oh, if a lucky, if a bounce goes the other way, I don't know. That just sets me off. No, I feel like that's a no. standard that he's held to. And we don't hold other managers to that. I, I don't yeah, and I, I I tend I tend to, to side more on, on the Kyle side of, of, of where he talks about sometimes they win they win a lot of games and they don't even they don't appear to play that well. Um you've got to understand that from Mourinho's point of view, sitting in, catching teams on on the break, control of a game doesn't mean having the ball and being attacking all the time. That's not the way he sees no. it. And you're right, that's not going to change. It's just not. But um you wonder, with the way this season has been, if an opportunity is being missed um, for Spurs to to maybe go be in, be in a real title race, like push Liverpool right the way forward. I just ponder how maybe a more um, brave and front-footed Spurs with the players they've got could maybe push Liverpool harder. But then, by, by the flip side to that, I'm the same person that thinks the last thing you want is to have, um, we'll say, Eric Dyer and um, Alderweireld with lots of space in behind by playing a higher line, and they're going to get caught out by teams. So I don't know. But, but this is what it is, and it's not changing anytime soon. Uh, all right, we continue, JJ. So I talked about this at the start of the show. A few weeks into the season, you know, we, we were looking at Everton and what they were doing, and we, we had kind of identified them really as a, a title contender, and it was just a matter of whether or not they'd be able to continue that throughout the course of the season. And we kind of wavered, went back and forth. They faded a little bit, and then we kind of, I don't know if it was like, it was never really a conscious decision. We just sort of brushed them aside. I felt like we didn't, we haven't talked about them a ton. Speak for yourself. We never did that. You you said very little about them. You care very little for them. But now, lo and behold, here they are. They've sort of reemerged. So we thought it'd be a good time to go back in the club right now. And we do so with Greg O'Keefe from The Athletic, who covers Everton. He joins us on Caught Offside right now. Greg, what's up, man? How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Well, I've got JJ's cards marked now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Well, Let's let's talk about this. What we're saying here: three straight wins against Chelsea, Leicester, Arsenal. Uh, you know, we're not that far removed from three straight losses against Southampton, Newcastle, and United. What has changed here? I know exactly, and that that sort of inconsistency is what underlines why you know Everton. The talk, obviously, the talk of the title was premature, uh, even in this strange season, and even I feel talk of the top four is a little bit um, unrealistic. But what's changed is that Carlo Ancelotti has is, 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 is got a greater understanding of, of um, when his first 11 isn't fit, how to get the best from this squad. Um, it's He's got a strong, really strong first 11. The depth that, that he's got isn't as good, maybe as he thought it was. But what he's done is he's managed to go back to base and get the best from them. So Everton... You know, didn't play particularly free-flowing champagne football against Chelsea and Leicester, 
but they did what they had to do. And he is the master of obviously of, of pragmatism, really, when it comes to style. He's not an ideologue. It's not a one size fits all. We'll play our way. You play yours. So he got them. He, he allowed Chelsea and Leicester to have the ball. Uh, he got two banks of four. And he got service in, which to, to Dominic Calvert-Lewin and to some of Everton's better players, attacking a six-yard box, which is a real strength for the moment. Set pieces and cross into the box are a massive strength. And so that's what's gotten back on track, I think. Yeah, Greg, I, I was reading your piece in The Athletic this morning, uh, celebrating Ancelotti's one-year anniversary at Everton. Um, you mentioned Dominic Calvert-Lewin there. Um <laughs> You know, I, I don't mean to be disparaging, but I always saw him as a guy who was, you know, a substitute striker at Everton, maybe somebody who they'd even move on. And now he's, mm. you know, one of, the, one of the more serious strikers in the Premier League, one of the more informed ones. What specifically has happened to him or, or what's been done? And, and can Ancelotti take some credit from that? No, and you know what? I, I wouldn't have uh, considered it disparaging anyway because I think if I'm honest, and many Evertonians are honest, we, we thought the same. He was the the striker that didn't score. He wasn't clinical enough. Uh, more often than not, if he went one-on-one, one on one, he was so knackered from running the channels and all this non-stop, maybe unnecessary uh, perpetual motion. He was missing chances. And what Ancelotti did, helped by Duncan Ferguson, who had already obviously got his claws into Dominic and helped refine him as a centre-forward, which is some some mentor, really. But Ancelotti went even further and helped him to, like I say, refine the amount of work he was doing outside of the box to calm down and to let a predatory instinct that I didn't think he had take over. And now, more often than not, you back him when the ball comes into the box. He's got this habit, mm. this knack of getting there first, almost like a... Harry Kane, the, the goals aren't very often flashy, but goodness me, he's being efficient right now. And um, yeah, like, like same as you, I would hand on heart said I didn't see him having a, a future as Everton's number nine. Even when he took on that shirt, I thought it was more because for whatever reason, the number was going spare. And I thought, you know, I admired his, um, you know, his, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way to say it. I admired his guts by saying, yeah, I'll have that number nine shirt. Um Maybe I was thinking somewhere, somewhere a little bit further down south. But nevertheless, now he looks like a real Everton number nine. And uh, he also looks like someone to be a contender for the Premier League's top scorer. And I never, ever would have thought I'd be saying that a year ago. Uh, Greg, yeah, the, the the piece that you have up about Ancelotti is interesting to me. I'm wondering, I know you're talking about the Calvert-Lewin element of it. Just like generally speaking, I'm curious what stood out to you from researching that, from writing that over the course of this past year with him. Yeah, well, I mean... I think what stood out for me is um, the degree to which Ancelotti has actually been a good fit for Everton. And now by that, I mean, um, it's not just a case of him saying the right things to appease a fan base uh, or throwing out sound bites. It's actually, he genuinely seems to be uh, comfortable on Merseyside and at Everton and to have found a club that he's happy to operate in. And I think if, you know, Clearly, if you're happy in any line of work, particularly the stresses of the Premier League management, you're going to really get the best out of him. And, you know, clearly a manager who'd been at the Bernabeu, who'd been at the Allianz with Bayern, who'd had this glittering CV, coming to Everton in the first place was quite an audacious appointment for Everton to be able to lure him. And and, and obviously, a lot of that was to do with the money that the owner for Ardmichie was able to offer him. And to an extent, I thought at first, well, is this just going to be a case of one last payday? But what I've what I've, I've actually 
much to my delight, discovered is that he's here because, yeah, it was a great uh, great contract. He loved the Premier League. He wants to get working it again. He was intrigued by Everton. And I think he subsequently found he loves Everton. He's spoken specifically about how he likes family clubs uh, in contrast to the sort of big, big corporate clubs. And he's obviously had his fair, fair share of both on it during his time. But I think he feels that and Everton are absolutely a family club. That, that you know they that's right down into the ethos of Everton Football Club from, from the the way it interacts with the community and it and it's uh, it's bond with its fans, and uh, it just suits him. And then of course, even during lockdown in the UK here, uh, he began to familiarize familiarize himself with the way he lives in Merseyside, and by all accounts, just fell in love with it. He can't stop raving about it. He's, he's praised it. Uh, in, in places from the New York Times. <laughs> he, he absolutely loves getting on his bike and getting around the area and learning about the history of the area. So um, it's, I've been shocked at what a, what a good fit it was. Greg, um, I spent some time at Finch Farm about a decade ago. I won't explain what I was doing there, but the sense I got <laughs> from the place was there was an ethos in the club that came from the first team down right into the structures, into the academy. Now, I know this is kind of a big picture question, but I could tell that there was an Everton way, if you will, if that doesn't sound too corny. There was an Everton way of of doing things. And I'm wondering, with someone like Ancelotti, who's come from the outside in, can you say that there's a link between the first team and what he's trying to do that has permeated into the club and into the academy itself? Yeah, uh, and I know what, I know what you mean. There is an Everton way, and sometimes it's quite an intangible thing to try and, you know, it, it almost sounds a little bit sort of, uh, you know, pompous, doesn't it? Because you know all football clubs like to think they have a way. I'm sure, but um, Everton's a very proud old club, and uh, you know it is styles itself as the people's club here on on Merseyside. And in a way, that's a, a PR contrast to Liverpool's sort of global juggernaut of success and, fa- and fan base, but. You know, even down to Everton's chairman Bill Kenwright, who's you know a, a guy who sat in the boys' pen at Goodison Park as a young lad, uh, and, and was the owner of the club until he uh, he made way for Fahad Mashiri and his billions. Uh, Everton, as I said, remains a family club, very close to the community. Uh, it, it it you know it's uh, respectful of its past and, and its past players. And then there's a way of playing football based on the the sixties with the the holy trinity of players with Howard Kendall and Colin Harvey and Alan Ball going right up to the eighties with the success under Howard Kendall and uh, the school of science ethos. There's even a, a way of playing uh, which at its very best, you know, Everton were a side that played football the right way. They got it down and they were uh, scored goals and they were entertaining to watch. And so all those things I think Ancelotti is bought into. And I like to hope if the circumstances are right and the recruitment is, he's able to feel his way around the perimeters of financial fair play, which Everton are rubbing up against, given the bad recruitment they've had in the past few seasons. I'd like to hope he can produce a style of football and teams that can not only play the Everton way, but can also be more importantly than anything else successful. So it's not just looking at past glories. It's not just banging them about history. It's actually adding some new history. And that starts with things like the League Cup as well, by the way. Everton haven't won a trophy since 1995. And that's mm. more, more than anything else what he's on their side to do. So, Greg, I'm curious, kind of along those lines, we're about a third of the way through the season right now, which I feel like is kind of a, a reasonable sample size where we can recalibrate whatever our expectations were from before the season. So what 
what are reasonable expectations for Everton supporters out there for this season? Well, it fluctuates, doesn't it? It's a good question because, you know, the season's so um, unlike others in terms of the lack of pre-season and then the, 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 the various challenges of some some teams have had fans, some teams haven't, depending on what tier of restrictions that they are in the UK. Uh, I think the teams that are lucky enough to have had fans, and Everton are one of them, have realised how important it is. Don't underestimate the Everton. We mentioned those three wins, beating Chelsea and Arsenal at Goodison Park. Do not underestimate how important it was to have 2,000 fans in the stadium. So um, who knows what's going to happen? I was going to say next week, let alone next month, probably tomorrow, given the state of things in the, in the United Kingdom at the moment. But if Everton can retain some fans, that's going to be huge. And I think they have to look to get into the business end of the League, club, league Cup, potentially win the League Cup, something they've never won before. And then, look, if they can get a bit of better fortune with injuries, and everyone's been affected right now, but a bit of better fortune and maybe a few little enhancements to the squad in January. They can challenge for the top four, but I think more likely is the Europa League qualification. So I'd say a top six finish. Greg, final one from me. Um, reading your piece was fascinating and I would tell everybody if they're, even if you're not a blue nose, even if you just want to watch what Ancelotti's done over the year, you've got a really good piece on The Athletic about it. But my question to you is this. You, you do state that the, the ambition within the club is this season, like you said, to challenge for something and to push for the Europa League. But that next season, the they, they real target is Champions League football. Um, when you heard that from your source, uh, did you raise an eyebrow? How realistic do you think that is? Um, well, thank you for saying those kind of things about the piece. And Patty and I are both really pleased with it because you know, it's, um, we wanted to get some real insight into those 12 months for Ancelotti and I think that kind of gets the, the, the hub of your question in terms of how realistic it is. Um, mm. Traditionally, things in you know, the top four would not would not have been very realistic whatsoever. And I did say earlier when we were sort of at the top of this section that I felt that top four maybe wasn't so realistic this season, despite the the, the, the top and turvy nature of the table. A couple of wins and you're, you're right up there. But next season, I think it has to be. I think it absolutely has to be. And, you know, again, this plays into the uncertainty of the world and football in general at the moment. Uh, Liverpool don't seem to be dropping off despite the adversity they've had. Man City, I just don't know. I just don't have a good feeling. I know I know they're still getting the results, but sometimes I look at them and think, I'm not sure if that's coming to maybe a bit of a point where they might look at changing again. Arsenal, obviously, in flux. Chelsea are doing well, but it's a bit hit and miss. Um and I think there's an opportunity there. I think there's an opportunity. I'm not sure Southampton and teams like that will sustain what they've done. Mm. So if Everton can get the right recruitment again, it's massive that they continue to try and do ambitious deals like they did with Real Madrid for James Rodriguez, where they get a player of that quality effectively for no transfer fee. Um, if they can do a bit more of that, then the, the potential to start taking points off the traditional top four away from home will be key then I think that they can. I think it's realistic they can get in the top four. Um, and of course, you know, Ancelotti needs to uh, need, needs to stay there and uh, be fully focused. And I see absolutely no sign that he'll be anything but. I think it's quite exciting. Greg, good stuff, man. At Greg OK on Twitter is where you can find him. Of course, The Athletic as well, where he covers Everton. Have a happy holidays. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate it. Same to you guys. Cheers. 
Great stuff from Greg there, Andrew. Um, I was going to ask him, but uh, you'd get mad at me for doing it, for taking us down a tangent. But at the weekend, I looked at the at the table and it was like Liverpool in the number one spot, Everton in the second spot, and then Spurs in the number three spot. And I was like, this kind of feels like the 1980s. <laughs> so Liverpool and Everton battling it out for the title, an economic crisis, Maggie Thatcher on the TV a lot, albeit in the new season of The Crown. This is the 80s. <laughs> yep, here comes Ossie Ardiles on for Spurs and <laughs> very, very And look, it's Chris Waddle down the wing. Although Chris Waddle would I, I think if you ask most Spurs fans right now, would you swap out current Gareth Bale for young Chris Waddle on the wing? I think they'd make that trade right now. Mm, wow. Uh, let's see. We should mention, by the way, that Greg joined us prior. We don't know what's happened yet in the Everton Manchester United uh, League Cup match. So just bear that in mind. Along those lines, I do want to mention something from a League Cup match that we do know what happened. Arsenal and Manchester City. Um, I don't have a ton to say about this. 4 mm. one your final. There's just one quote that I heard that um, I really, really enjoyed. It was from Mikel Arteta afterwards. He said, uh, in talking about basically the state of Arsenal right now, um, he was talking to Sky Sports and he said, we have to turn it around. There's no question. If we don't, we're in big trouble. So this is the moment that's going to decide our season. We have, we do have the tools to turn things around because I see how much the players try and what they're trying to do. But at the moment, a lot of strange things are happening in every game and that makes things really difficult. That I love that last part about oh, a lot of strange things are happening in every game. It's, it's like... I feel like it's like the kind of thing that I would say to my parents after I failed a math test in high school. Just like, <laughs> I don't know, mom and dad, the test started. And then just like a lot of strange things started happening. Like there was an earthquake and like a centaur walked through the room. It was just very hard to focus and concentrate. Like it just felt like such a innocent, like excuse kind of for what's going on there. Why did you flunk out of college, JJ? Mom, dad. Dark forces are at work. <laughs> a lot of strange things happen. I don't know. I was in college. Someone handed me a beer. Next thing I know, I woke up in a gutter. Like, <laughs> it's strange. It's all just happened to me. Um, right. <laughs> I, I feel bad for him because that's coming on the back of the, the whole XG explanation he tried to work out, which people have analyzed. Um, but it's it's bad right now. And they, they need – he's he is right. They need the rub of the green somewhere. Um, because right now they're in a relegation battle, and uh, it's, oh it's, it's what a sentence! Yeah, they have not been in this position since the ooh uh, the mid nineties. I think this the last season of George Graham or the first season of Bruce Rioch, um pre Wenger, very bad. Well, in terms in terms of them being fifteenth, this is this is as bad as it's been since the mid seventies, right? Yeah, right. No, it is. But I, I, I'm being optimistic here, Andrew, because they finished in those seasons. I think they finished 12th, um, which was seen as a disaster at the time. Yeah. Well, before we get out of the EFL Cup, I just wanted to, to mention Brentford be, beating Newcastle. That is a significant result that's happened. I tweeted out last night about it because I know Newcastle have been hit hard by COVID, but the team they put out last night to lose in that fashion was really poor. Um, I said nobody really thought Arsenal would win, but Newcastle's defeat was much, much worse. Exposed by a forward-thinking, progressive, modern club who are in a division below them and in a competition Newcastle should be targeting to win. Um, our friend Lee Ryder had some 
grim portents for Steve Bruce in his aftermatch piece. By the way, he destroyed Miguel Almiron and mm. um, and uh, Joao Linton. He just went after them. Uh, I say he went after them. He, he told the truth. They haven't been good. Um, but this is what he said for Steve Bruce. What happens next for Bruce? The body language of certain players suggests time is close to being up. Yet Ashley is always guided by those around him. Ashley doesn't like writing big checks for compensation and won't want to shell out more for a new boss, but it's his club. And if he wants to do it the hard way again, that's his choice. Hmm. So, I mean, Newcastle aren't in a relegation battle right now, but but if you're a club that size, you, you've got to have ambitions of at least being in a League Cup final and losing to Brentford in a quarterfinal. is just disastrous. Well, you're right. And I think you just touched on the problem that Newcastle fans have right now is like, okay, it's this... It's this back and forth of, well, we're not in the relegation battle, so that's something. Like At some point, you're right, Newcastle have to be bigger than that. We're just simply staving off relegation. It has Their seasons have to be more than just that. Like, so, yeah, I would agree. You have to find meaning. If Imagine 60, I know it can't happen right now, but imagine every season going in and thinking, well, best thing we can do is finish 10th or 11th. Uh, stave off a relegation battle and like losing the cups. Why would you not want to try and win the Carabao Cup? Why would you not want to try and fill Wembley with like 70,000 Geordies and give them a day out? I mean, Geordies have had more day outs from being promoted than they have in the Premier League. And it's too big of a club for this. It's it's so, oh, that result last night just struck me. Arsenal never thought they'd do anything against Manchester City and their current guys. Plus, I firmly believe that Pep Guardiola has the the head of a carabao, a massive carabao with its full horns over his mantelpiece. Like I can imagine when Pep Guardiola was was signed for Manchester City, Andrew, allow me to go on this flight of fancy. And he mm. sat at the table with, you know, all the big wigs in Manchester City. And Ferran Soriano goes, Pep, here we believe you can win many Premier Leagues and maybe even many Champions Leagues. There's also the FA Cup. And Pep just goes, he pushes his contract to the center of the table and goes, I am here for the Carabao, (laughs) nothing else. Well, he has certainly (laughs) followed through with that promise. All right, enough of my nonsense. Let's get on to the real stuff. These are the champions. Don't be some of them. The champions, but not you know, really, I, but kind I, of. I have some real problems with that song that I've been thinking about over the past several days because you say that these are not the champions taking part in this competition. Neither is the Champions League in UEFA. So come on. Let's have, let's let's treat this with a measure of dignity and respect that it deserves. All right? You're except quite right. when except when MLS teams lose, in which case we should dump all over this competition and not treat it with any <laughs> dignity, which is what we're going to do right now. Uh, yes, last night, late last night was the CONCACAF Champions League final. Uh, I just want to go through some of it because there's obviously the game itself. And then there's like, if you were on Twitter last night, U.S. soccer Twitter is just kind of like ablaze, you know, with with what it means and all that stuff. So it's worth, I guess, putting in an opinion on it. But I felt terrible, honestly, for LAFC. I mean, Tigres were viewed as as the favorite coming into this. But LAFC, you know, we we talk about not bending a style. You have a certain way that you want to play and you're not going to change regardless of who the opponent is. And that that is exactly what Bob Bradley and LAFC did against Tigres. And I think it was admirable and it worked for a large portion of the game. The start was rough for them, but they, you know, they they held it together. And then I thought they really 
I thought they really played well. They dictated pace of play. I can't think of many opportunities that Tigres really had to score goals and and kind of like thrust their will upon the game until they started scoring goals in the 71st, 72nd minute. So at times, JJ, it kind of felt like what you always talk about, what cup finals can feel like. And it was it was kind of ugly for, for large portions. But LAFC probably had the better share of the chances. You know, in the end, the, you get to the, the 61st minute, they finally get that goal, a great one-two. It was a beautiful goal, one-two with Vela and Mark anthony K, and then K plays in a perfect ball to Diego Rossi, and he's got a great chip of the keeper at the end. It was just like a very LAFC goal. And then in the, the 65th minute, you get to what was probably, if I had to identify a turning point of the game, it's what happened in the 65th. And that is LAFC, they score their goal, and they continue to push on and look for that second, which is important, I think, in a situation like this against Tigres. And lo and behold, here we are with Carlos Vela in the box, gets the ball, a good pass from Apoku, gets the ball right around the penalty spot, and there's not really a defender near him, puts a shot on, and somehow it's blocked, like just yards from the keeper. And it was one of those moments where as soon as he let it go, every part of me was already thinking, okay, it's 2-0. Vela just scored. Oh my God, they're going to do this. And it's Mm. blocked. And it turned the whole game. I don't know if LAFC consciously, subconsciously was let down from that goal not happening. If Tigres got a lift from sort of this new lease on life, but it all changed from that moment on. And it always felt like Tigres were going to get at least one. And in the end, they got two. The first goal, I felt terrible for Mark Anthony Kay. He had sort of an up and down night, not a great first half, but a brilliant assist on the the Rossi goal and then there he is like he's defending the far post on the corner kick and it's why he's there and it just kind of wrong foots him gets under his legs Andrew, it was Andrew he's got to clear that I know he's got to clear it yeah I know and I'm sure no one knows that right now no one's thinking about that right now more than him I felt I felt terrible for him he's such an important player for them and then you know the winning goal it's just LAFC on their heels. They have defenders. Janela is tracking the uh, Rodriguez. Uh, Eddie Guardado, who who played well and who's had a very good tournament, you know he's he's in position to defend it. But they're just backtracking, 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 and finally they can kind of backtrack no more. Rodriguez is now in the danger zone, and he's got time and space to to lay off an easy ball to Gignac, who finishes beautifully. The one man that you just cannot allow to get in those spaces is Gignac. He didn't have a great game, but he was great when he needed to be. Can I give can I give uh, Tigres one bit of credit for that? Like it was bad defending. They had numbers up, LAFC did. But the one thing I will say, there's a little darting run. Gignac's on the edge of the box and someone's picking him up. I can't remember who it was, but there's a darting run made by the Tigres player, which pulls it's the dummy run it pulls the the lafc defender away from geniac andrew he could have taken a touch he had so much time and it was a brilliant finish and you're right sometimes he looks like he's not even involved in the game but he is he's such a good finisher and he was so calm and composed there and you're right that was that there was no way back from lafc and and you you've got to look at that turning point that chance if vela scores that andrew it's i think it's over it might. Who knows? We'll never know. But you're you're right to think that certainly. So it's ugh, it's just more frustration for MLS clubs that continue to get so close in this competition, but just cannot break this Mexican stranglehold right now that Liga MX has over this. Um, yeah, you know, I liked what Bob Bradley said afterwards in in talking about his team and not bending their style. He said, when you have a team and you establish a way of playing and you establish an identity, if all of a sudden the game doesn't go your way or you have 
you have a period where you don't where you're not quite as good it's not like you then say all right forget that we're going to try something different that's bleep that's not how you ever become a good team you become a good team when you have real football ideas and everybody's committed to the work and then every time you continue to try to get better to make play players better and then as a team grow in addition to the football part the mentality and the ability to compete and play in tough games and and that's that's what they did they did not bend their style it almost worked for them i I don't know that I would say that they should have done anything different. It was uh, it was frustrating for them because I, I guess specifically with LAFC, you just don't know. You know I believe they'll be good for a, for years to come. It seems like there's great infrastructure with that club. They have a manager certainly that I believe in. But like, where is Diego Rossi going to be an LAFC player for the long haul? You know, Eduard Atuesta is he going to be like? You, you don't know with some of these guys, and you don't always know. What happens with new players coming in? We've seen Atlanta United FC in a similar position where we thought they'd be great for years to come. Joseph Martinez gets hurt and and not, you know, they're still good, but they're not necessarily what we thought they were going to be uh, for the next five, six years or so. So um, it's, it's, man, it's tough. It's a tough one for LAFC to take. There's no question about that. Um, and then of course, JJ, there's what this all means for the, of, of course, the, the American inferiority complex because we have to apply meaning to everything now. Of There's course. no way we can just look at this game and thought, ah, oh, that's a turning point there. LAFC have got some good players. They play a nice style. They were unlucky tonight. On we move. No, everything must be seen as either a validation mm-hmm. or as something that takes our soul apart. One or Correct. the other. It can't be in the middle. No, no, no. It's, it has to be this way. We have to face our inferiority complex head on. Uh, we have to learn to deal with it and live with it and cope with it. And look, here, here ultimately, here's what I will say about this. Look, LAFC beat three Liga MX clubs to get here. And not just three Liga MX clubs, but like three of the giant Liga MX clubs. So the, we can talk about the gap between the leagues and whatever you think that might be. It's shrunk. Okay, it's shrunk almost down to nothing. Remember, too, like we're just looking at LAFC. Toronto FC lost on penalties in this competition to Chivas just a couple years ago. So, like, whatever the gap is, if there, if you want to believe there is still one, fine. I won't fight you on that. But like, what are we talking here? Unfortunately, though, you and I can sit here and we can sift through the nuance and you know talk about the gray areas and all that. But like. It's kind of just doing that is kind of just covering up these like inescapable truths that like you can only gain respect by winning trophies in these kinds of situations. You know, like I I was thinking about it, JJ, and I was thinking about the early 2000s and like the Red Sox Yankees rivalry. And like clearly that rivalry, the gap Mm. between those two teams, you saw what the Red Sox had built. The gap had shrunk down to nothing. Like they were. Dead even, essentially. But like Aaron Boone hits that home run in game seven. And what does it do? It reaffirms all the perceptions up oh, the Red Sox. They'll just never do it. They'll just never be the Yankees. They can't beat the Yankees. It took it only took the Red Sox winning the following year in seven games like that. That needed to happen until that could happen. Perceptions were always going to be reality, fair or not. And that I feel like is kind of where MLS is. Like we can sit here and we can look at a penalty defeat for Toronto FC. We can talk about Latif Blessing not getting the penalty in the first half last night that he probably should have gotten. If there's VAR in that game last night, Latif Blessing is probably awarded a penalty in the 18th minute. And then who knows what we're talking about. So, you know, we can talk about all those things, but ultimately they're going to have to win. And I don't mean LAFC, I mean MLS. At some point, if, if you want the respect of Liga MX and of Liga MX supporters and Mexican supporters, you're going to have to win. It's as simple as that. And until that happens, 
you know, like I said, you and I, we can high five each other and talk in, in our corners about, you know, we're just as good as them. But this is the perception and sometimes perception is reality. I agree with you, my man. I just want to circle back to Tigres just for one second before we get off this, because you got to give credit to what they've done. You also got to give credit to, to Gignac, who is just, he's such an enigmatic player. He's such a strange player to have ended up in Liga Mekis. And um, I love this piece from Duncan Tucker um, on Vice. It's from 2017, and it's on Gignac's move to Liga Mekis. Although he sometimes lumbers around the pitch like a man who's enjoyed a few too many tackles, opposing fans in France used to mock his paunch with the chant, Un Big Mac pour Gignac. Gignac was only 29 when he arrived, much younger than most of the stars who play out their twilight years in North America. Still boasting a deft touch, strength in the air, and a superb eye for goal, he proved his doubters wrong with 44 goals in his first 18 months at Tigres, including several acrobatic volleys and long-range strikes that few others would dare attempt to pull off. Andrew, he has, of, of this moment in all competitions, 143 goals and 35 assists from Tigres since he joined in, in 2015. It was such a weird move, but it's been so successful, and you can't help but say that he hasn't been <laughs> he's been worth his four million. Oh uh, yeah. And by the way, I don't look at him and think that he's heavy and out of shape. No, but there's pictures when he was at Marseille um before he moved, there was there was question marks about his personal behavior. And there are pictures where you go, hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a a little bit a little bit roundy there. Well, a little bit uh, a little bit doughy. Um and, and also we're conditioned by looking at Premier League stars who are you know, they're like runway models from the 90s. Yeah. They, they just have zero body fat. So um, so it, it, I, I do like the lumbering center forward. And that's why I, when I see guys like Haller who are sad and, 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 not, and it's not working out, I, I always wish the best for them because I, I never want to see that player go out of style. While you're talking about Tigres and Gignac, like, uh, congrats to them. They deserve this. They deserve this probably as much as any club in CONCACAF, given the fact that this was their fourth final in the last five years. They had lost the previous three. Like they, They've been a, a power, a mm. force in Mexican football, and, and they absolutely deserve this. So this is not me, – me talking about the LAFC angle on this is not meant as any kind of slight on, on Tigres. Like they, you know, they were favorites. No, 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 no. Well, what I will say, though, is that this is – this is now at a point though where this has become really fun to me. Like this the Mexican the USA Mexico rivalry. You know, the fact that it's now kind of in some ways transcended and gone beyond the borders of just the national teams and it's now seeped into the leagues itself. Like and look, maybe Liga MX fans still don't see it that way. They may see MLS still as a nuisance. I don't know, but to me this like there's a rivalry here between these two leagues which has become very fun. Uh I think I feel like it's like this USA Mexico soccer relationship. It's like you know people have the like their favorite band that hasn't gone mainstream yet. That's kind of like their thing. I feel like the rest of the world doesn't quite know this rivalry that these two countries have with one another in a soccer sense. And I think yeah. it's it's very fun. Like even uh, and I'm going beyond like the national teams. Like the LAFC the the semifinal was like a complete bleep show. Uh, in their semifinal win against Club America, like the the Atuesta red card was a joke. Miguel Herrera is a he's a a human embodiment of a circus. You know, Vela, uh, a Mexican player, just doing that to a Mexican club, playing the way that he did. Like, 
it was, you know, then the the ugly red card late. I forgot about that for Luis Reyes. Like that game was a disaster. You know, and I know on on U.S. Soccer Twitter, people were talking about this is what's wrong with Concacaf games like this. But like, let's be honest, that game was memorable as hell. Like that game will be remembered for a very long time by fans of of not just both those clubs, but both of these leagues. Like you can't have games like that all the time. Or yes, these competitions do become kind of a joke. But like. I think it's important as the stature of MLS grows to have those kinds of memorable games like that uh, between these two leagues. That's the stuff that makes this in some ways a lot of fun. I think what's going to happen now is that we may not get the chance to see this for too many years later. But people are looking at the TV ratings for League MX and, and, and South American football, Central American football. They're looking at them, TV execs in, in North America and you know, they're looking at it with envious eyes. They're thinking about how the two leagues can be more aligned, how it can be more combined. And I think that's the next thing we're going to see is where there's going to be more of a streamlining between the two leagues, intra-league competition. That's going to be good, but eventually I think they're going to want to try and unite the league. And that is where I would feel that that won't be good for us on our end. I, yeah, I don't know. Can't we just stick with a model of just like MLS, Liga MX, and the two can meet in Champions League play? Like, is that, does that not, not work? Not I mean, while you see what's happening uh, with, with ratings for, for Liga MX, for big Liga MX games. I mean, the the ratings in North America, or excuse me, in the United States are enormous. Hmm. And we know that MLS doesn't always have that level of interest. Right. And uh, unification is the business is the is the way the business will go unfortunately the business side of things and um i i we need to be careful with that because as much fun as these interleague games are i think the i would like to see the money go into a better champions league product hype it more get it on terrestrial tv make more of it that way rather than joining the two leagues because that has that has serious implications speaking of mls by the way i did want to mention mls legend calls it a career kyle beckerman retires at uh, the age of 38 just a, a great player uh, who I, I think, I mean, he was named as one of MLS's top 25 players of all time, and he's so deserving of it. This is from uh, Ari Lillianwall's article at MLSsoccer.com. Uh, talks about Beckerman, a nine-time All-Star and 2009 MLS Cup winner. Beckerman, 38, became one of the best defensive midfielders in league history and is the league's all-time leader in regular season games played, games started, and minutes played among field players. Earlier this month, he was named as one of MLS's 25 greatest. And then also, JJ, the part of Beckerman's career that I, I think, I don't know if people thought that this was going to happen, but in the end, 58 senior caps. Um, you know, CONCACAF Gold Cup winner, made the tw- not just made the 23-man roster for the 2014 World Cup in Brazil, but started the three group stage games and was really good. Uh, and, you know, Beckerman, he, he spoke uh, sort of like retrospectively about his career and, and what making that World Cup squad did for him, uh, what it meant to him, playing in those group stage games, playing well in those group stage games. He talked about the win against Ghana uh, and just like what what that meant for him as not about not like a validation necessary, necessarily of his career, but in, in some ways a validation of the fact that he belonged among uh, the great players in U.S. history. And, and it's, you know, I don't know that everyone always looked at him and said, that's going to be the U.S.'s defensive midfielder in a World Cup, and we're going to be strong in that position. And he built himself into that player. And heading into that 2014 World Cup, I mean, I remember you and I doing previews of the U.S. I don't at any mm. point remember talking about, oh, 
Beckerman's going to be a weak spot for that team. That was never the case. He was like, we felt good about his spot in defensive midfield and he validated that. So props to him, man. Great, great career. I remember specifically talking about how he was maybe a solution as a defensive center midfielder, someone who can get on the ball, win tackles and, and get it to our more, more skillful, creative players. And um, he was just a really solid player. And he was one of those players that everybody kind of liked. His commitment was always a hundred percent. He was always working hard. He was, he was actually the last of a dying breed of, of, of a, of a, of a midfielder that we don't really see very much of anymore because so much more is demanded of players now. Um, but he was a really, really good player and um, he's had a great career. Yeah. So good stuff, Kyle Beckerman and all the best. He talked about, you know, he's the son of, of two school teachers, his brother is a wrestling coach. So he certainly seems like he could be headed down a path of coaching himself. And he, in the way he spoke about it, it seems like he's embracing that idea uh, maybe not in the immediacy, but in the years to come. So don't be surprised if we uh, at some point see Kyle Beckerman patrolling a sideline somewhere in MLS. I think that is a very realistic possibility. It would be pretty cool to see. Uh, let's see. Now you have a mailbag, JJ, to close things out. I do indeed, Andrew, a, a festive mailbag. Um, Twitter at CO Soccer Pod, Insta caught offside ESPN and the email caught offside pod at gmail.com follow us give us a rating on itunes or wherever you can give ratings and be nice it's christmas scotty hellstad kicks us off a question specifically for old andy cakes any chance andrew could give some insight on bail just really curious about his health and role on tottenham yeah you and everyone else i would say i mean my guess is that they just feel like they need to ease him back in uh from this knee injury that he he came in with they knew about this and i think it was just something that they were willing to take their chances on and unfortunately maybe it's not going quite the way that they had hoped plus um he was dealing with some kind of illness which caused him to miss uh the two matches leading up to the most recent one against lester uh so that i guess was also somewhat of a factor i just wonder if they're kind of playing a long game here with bale and by that i mean this season i don't mean the long game like in the years to come if just that you know Kane and Son are obviously vital to what this club wants to do in attack. Uh, but, you know, those are two guys who Kane deals with injuries year in, year out, it seems. Son last year missed time. And so I wonder, you know, Tottenham fell apart last year when those players were gone and they didn't really have reinforcements. So I just wonder if Mourinho looks at Bale as almost the ultimate insurance plan. Like if I lose one of these guys, I have Gareth Bale fully fresh in the second half of the season who can step in and, and the hope is that Tottenham won't skip a beat. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. Bale's thir- in his 30s now. He's not the player necessarily that he was a few years ago, but maybe that's Tottenham's idea. Let's just keep this guy fresh. And so when the time comes, we have him ready to be deployed and we can kick on. Uh, we'll see. I, I have to believe he's going to get used at some point, more than just a, a sub in the league and a Europa League guy. Um, whether or not that takes an injury to occur or whether or not he just wills it himself and, and forces his way into the starting 11, that I have no idea. I really, uh, I'm not sure. I guess we'll see. Kevin uh, writes us, when pundits comment on player selection, they always attach a disclaimer such as, we obviously don't know what's happening on the training ground. I understand broadly what this means and its connotations, but I was wondering if you could highlight specific things a player could be doing well in training that might cause a coach to feel the player deserves a starting spot, even if their league form isn't necessarily what is expected. Thanks for your consideration. Your pod has been a source of cheer through some dark times. 
both the insignificant ones on the pitch and significant ones off it. Thanks for that, Kevin. Very thoughtful. Um, I, I automatically think of, of strikers who are hitting the target, who look sharp in training, who are making good runs, and it's just not happening on the field. Um, I, I do think that the the coach who looks at training Monday to Friday and then picks based on that on the Saturday is probably it's I, I think that may be less significant these days with the data and the analytics that they can get from actual playing in games. But um, broadly, uh, like basically, if a striker or a midfielder is working really hard in training, the attitude is good, things like that, and it's just not coming together on the pitch, um, then a, a, a pundit will say, well, we obviously don't know what's happening on the training ground. A lot of pundits played in a time where how you performed Monday to Friday was a massive influence on whether you started or not. So I would I would be shocked if you hear some of the younger pundits use that kind of um that kind of verbiage or that kind of um that kind of um colloquial football talk, I should say. Um but yeah, striker is the one that, that springs to mind. Uh Lucas Mayer. Uh, hello, JJ and Andrew. This is Lucas. I'm 21 and I live in DC. I was listening to the pod last week and heard JJ mention the show The Thick of It. I decided to, I had to try it out. I've only watched two episodes so far, but I just can't stop laughing. I love it. I've grown up watching Monty Python and I just love British humor. Are there any shows that you could recommend to me? Um, I'm sorry that my question can't be soccer based. No, that's fine. We brought it up. Um, I love the pod and listen to every episode. I can't wait for your next one. Thanks so much. Well, I, I would just say, Lucas, try Peep Show. It's on Hulu. Um, it stars Mitchell and Webb, the two comedians who've been partnered together. Um, it's about a very kind of conservative, anal um, uh, flatmate and his other flatmate who is a <laughs> a bedroom disc jockey layabout who's unemployed and kind of leeches off him and has a different relationship. He's, it, it's, it's one of my favorite shows of all time and it's just so funny. So that's Peep Show on Hulu. That was That was the one I would really recommend. They, you turned me on to them. Like they, Mitchell and Webb is is sketch comedy too, right? Yeah, they they had their own show, uh, sketch show that Mitchell and Webb look, which is very very funny. Oh, um, but it. this yeah. was written for this was written for them, which is different. So they don't write it; they they um they just act in it. I say they just act in it; they're absolutely magnificent. But uh, Mitch, that Mitchell and Webb look was their own sketch show, and that was the mailbag, Andrew, for this week. Oh, good stuff! Whew, what a show! Oh, man, what a show. Uh, we got to relive the CONCACAF Champions League final, talk about what it means for our American psyches. It's very important. We covered a lot of important ground here today. I'm proud of you, JJ, for for the steps you've taken. You've grown right here before my eyes. Very important. I, 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 thought, I, I thought this was, if this was a sandwich of a podcast, Andrew, I think it had all the meats, all the deli meats, all the salted meats, uh, a nice variety. Um, everything for the palate, from CONCACAF to the Premier League to to the Premier League. Brilliant. <laughs> yes. Our thanks to Greg O'Keefe of The Athletic for joining us to talk about Everton as we went in the club with him. Our thanks to you guys with a mailbag. We'll have a bigger mailbag next week, kind of an end-of-year retrospective mailbag. So start getting in your end-of-year questions to us right now. We'll start working on those. This was fun, man. Hey, for real, I hope you have a great holiday. I hope all you guys out there listening have a great holiday. Um, I know this one's going to be a little bit different, a little bit harder to be with family uh, and friends, but nevertheless, try to just kind of like take a deep breath, see that maybe we're almost out of this ugly, dark period, hunker down. We'll get through this. I promise everyone we will. 
just uh, hang in there. Enjoy your holidays. Enjoy your time off from work. For those of you who are taking a little bit of vacation time, JJ, I miss you. Uh, Have a great Christmas. For real, man. Love you too, man. Um, Same to everybody. And like you said, Andrew, hunker down. We will get out of this. Yep. To you, I say. Check you later, fun boy. See ya. Take care, bruv.